You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is from Colossians 1, 15-20. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in, he- in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is God's word. All right, kids, you are dismissed up to your class. Take a jacket with you because it's a little bit chilly. Well, good morning again. Again, good morning. Um, I welcome you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians and follow along with us. We're in just six chapter or six verses in the first chapter of 15 through 20. Um, the text will be on the screen, but it's always helpful to see some of the references and things that we're speaking of there before you and put a marker there and come back later uh, to revisit because there is a lot packed within even these six verses. We've spoken regularly about how Colossians is loaded with Jesus and this passage is the centerpiece. So I'm going to pray this morning and ask you to join me. We pray that the um, Spirit would, would be with us and fill us and teach us uh, as we open up this text. So would you pray with me? Um, Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to hear from you in your word. Uh, give me the clarity of the words to speak. Um, and Lord, give us the, hear, the ears to hear, Lord, that our hearts might be changed so that in our lives we might know and look more like Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen. So last week when we walked through the passage prior to this, we spoke about the fact that uh, Paul is introducing this letter to the Colossian church, and he um, has just wrapped up a prayer that he has shared with the Colossian church in the totality of what he's desiring for them. He's heard about their faith that they have in Christ. He's heard about the love that they have for the saints, and, and he is encouraged by that, But he has also heard that there's a threat of false teaching among them. And the end of the last passage there in uh, Colossians 1, 12 through 14, in those last couple of verses, he's telling the Colossian church that he wants them to give thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this particular passage following is a continuation of that prayer, that thought. That prayer has introduced the Son God loves, and now he begins to roll into an overflow of praise for who that Son is. It's the crux of Paul's letter. 
the foundation from which he builds the rest of his appeal, refuting the false teaching facing the Colossian church. And, and this false teaching is, uh, is one that threatens to lead this young, small church in Colossae into all forms of error and philosophy and away from the simple, central focus of their faith and love, and that is Jesus Christ. See, he begins to set that foundation, and then we see him refer back to it and establish everything in Christ all the way through the passage. If you look with me in Colossians, in the, continuing the first chapter, 27 and 28, he says, God wanted me, or wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In the second verse of chapter 2, he tells them, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he again says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world, rather than Christ. Verses 16 and 17 of the same chapter, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, he tells them, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For if you died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. Most scholars look at this passage and they agree that the skillful wording and rhythmic balance of this passage suggests at least Paul in some way himself was inspired to poetry. Interestingly enough, at the end of Colossians, Paul even makes a reference and a distinction between songs, hymns, and spiritual songs as if there's a kind of song that is spiritually inspired in a unique way. Some go so far as to suggest that this was possibly even an early hymn of the church that he's quoted or adapted for his purposes. It seems so well fitted for this passage, and it could be any number of things, but it's very intentional and it's very clear. But as Pastor H.B. Charles, who preached from this same passage at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in chapel, he says this, even if the words of this text do not derive from worship, they should result in worship. When we look at this passage, it has, if you have in your Bibles, maybe the CSB, whatever version, there's many different uh, titles for this passage. The CSB goes with centrality of Christ. The ESV, KJV, NKJV decides to go with the preeminence of Christ. The NET, the Net Bible, and the NIV go with the supremacy of Christ. And the NASB decides to go away from all of them and say the incomparable Christ. Which is a good summary. Like, we don't even know how to say it. It's incomparable. As one who's been accused on regular occasions of being extra, I find none of these to be totally complete and encompassing what this says about Christ. A supremacy in Oxford or the Webster's Dictionary talks about the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status, often referring to authority and power, which he is. Centrality talks about the quality of being essential or of the greatest importance, which he is. 
And preeminence speaks to the fact of surpassing all others, like in quality and excellence, which he is. So as one who is extra, we are going to talk today about the supremacy, the centrality, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Throughout the passage, Paul stresses and repeats the absolute supremacy, centrality, and preeminence of Christ. In verse 15, he's, he continues to here talking about how he is over all and over everything. Firstborn over all creation, everything created by him, all things being created through him, before all things, by him all things hold together, first place in everything, all his fullness dwells in him, to reconcile everything to himself. It's all about Jesus, and he is everything. So today we are going to speak clearly about the divisions that Paul puts in here in two greater categories. First, he talks about the supremacy, centrality, and preeminence of Jesus Christ over all creation, all created things. And secondly, he talks about it over new creation, the redemption of the world. So look at me at verse, one, or verse 15 of chapter 1, over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What you need to recognize and see what Paul is stressing here is that Jesus is the invisible God Almighty. See, the ancients living in cities like Colossae, they often served regional deities, right? They had people that were local to them. Folks that uh, really the spiritual inhabitants in some respects were thought to live alongside the physical people, humans who were there. And the rituals and the festivals that went along with the deity were integral to the life of the town. It's not, an, it's not uh, unexpected that if, if you wanted to maybe tick off the rest of the town, you were to step out of the worship of that deity and join something like Christianity. Because everyone wants to appease the God who's the local God. Paul is saying here uh, <clears throat> in this particular passage that we don't have to guess what the invisible God looks like. See, the local, the local deities they served, and they tried to find out what they wanted. They would set up idols to worship them in rituals and sacrifices. Often some deities would be, they'd slaughter pigs and try to sift through intestines to see what these gods wanted for them and who they were and what they exactly wanted for them to do in their life, and they would try to please them. But Paul is telling us that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God, and we don't have to guess what he's like. We hear that echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament, like in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, Though while God long ago spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different days, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And he continues in verse 3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. In the introduction of the Gospel of John we're told in verse 18 that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. And then in John 14, verses 8 and 9, Jesus himself was asked by the disciple Philip. He said, hey, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. That's all we want to see is we want to see the Father. And Jesus says to him, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. 
You know, humanity was marked out to bear the image of God in creation, if you read Genesis 1. To be the perfect vehicle of his self-expression in the world. To be those who represent him as his image bearers. But in Christ, the invisible God has perfectly revealed himself in fullness. God has accomplished what humanity has not been able to accomplish in the person and work of Jesus himself. And he's done it with the purpose and work that he intended to accomplish himself in Christ. And that's redemption. See, in verse 19, where it also states the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. That's not to be understated because as I, <laughs> as I, as I meditated on this passage and considered what that truly means, Every time we see a theophany, that's like the appearance of God in the world. In the Old Testament, it comes with fierceness, like totality, like this awe-inspiring, world-breaking God and all his glory shows up and things fall apart because sin, death, evil cannot stand in his presence. It's, it's a matter of the nature of who he is. But all of that fierce glory, power, and might of God is enveloped in the fully human body of Christ because he wanted us to know who he is. The Bible tells us that no one has seen God, yet we've seen Jesus himself. You don't have to ask questions anymore about what he's like. He's not God 2.0. Any ambiguity about who God is and his heart for the world are clarified in Christ. He's not different or an upgraded version from the angry God of the Old Testament. He's the same God in the flesh. Jesus is the most high God. He is also preeminent over creation. Look at that second part of the passage. The firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things have been created through him and for him. All right, let's not get too distracted by the idea of firstborn. I have a firstborn child. She's the oldest one. That's not what it's talking about when it comes to Jesus here. See, in the fourth century, Arius who was a preacher from Alexandria, Egypt, he taught that Christ was a created being, that this was in reference to him being the first among the creation, that he was greater than the rest of the creation, but he was lesser than God himself, okay? And he was trying to, he was hoping, you know, a lot of bad things happen with good intentions. He was hoping that this position would protect Christianity from the charge of polytheism, right? Multiple gods. The issue is, that the church says, no, he is fully God, not a created God. Mormons and Jehovah's Witness continue this error. If you wonder if there's a difference why we would say they don't fall into historical Christianity, Mormons believe Jesus is the product of divine procreation, therefore being the firstborn. Jehovah's Witnesses would believe that Jesus is the first created being, actually created as the archangel Michael. Okay? This is not what we read here in the firstborn. Here, the thought of firstborn is not a reference to birth at all. It's the title that is given to Israel in the Old Testament. 
It's in David, he's referred to as the firstborn among many kings in Psalm 89. And there's also a reference of firstborn to the coming Davidic Messiah. Clearly not the firstborn of kings. Clearly Israel's not the firstborn nation, but it's a title. The Jewish concept of birthright and privilege predominates this passage. The idea that the one who has the most privilege, power, and authority in the household, the responsibility. Richard Mellick in his Colossians commentary on this tells us that the term firstborn distances Jesus from creation rather than subsumes him, rather than subsumes him under it. Therefore, the point is that Jesus is the firstborn. First, <laughs> Jesus is the firstborn, meaning preeminent, with reference to creation. Just as later Paul argued that Jesus was preeminent in this same passage we're reading, out of the dead. He's not the first to die, but he is firstborn of the dead. We also continue to see not only is he preeminent in creation, that he is over it and has ruling authority there, but it tells us in three consecutive phrases that creation is by him, through him, and for him. Okay? By him, which actually could be, and actually the thought there is not just an action taken by him, but it's more of a creation that's in him. In his mind. Melek, in the same commentary, tells us practically it's like creation was his idea. Like creation was done by Jesus. The Father here in his role is the architect. He determines to bring creation into existence. The Son actually brought the plans into existence. He is the one who executes. I work on commercial construction sites often, and it's like the foreman. He's getting the job done. It also tells us here, that it is um, through him, right? That is to say that creation is not only his idea, but it's created through his power and his strength. He in his glory and his power is the one who's brought creation into existence. And then finally it says created for him, which is to mean created for his glory. It magnifies the glory of the artist, the creator, the author, all of creation exists to display his glory and will ultimately glorify him. And when it says all of creation, read with me this portion. It says, everything in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, that idea of heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, it's saying the physical world, the earth, the visible world. That's something we see around us. Those physical things have been created. But also, he's saying everything that is not visible, the spiritual world, the heaven, the invisible, is been created by God, by Jesus himself as well. He's the author. He is the creator. It says whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, let's not get hung up on the nuance of what those mean. But in many, this is all authorities in heaven and in earth, spiritual and physical, are under his creative power. And as the one holy God under his authority. And this is so important, friends, because I have found myself tempted more often than not when things get stressful, when things get hard, when things get difficult, to start looking to other options in this world and other solutions and other possibilities that might fix my issue rather than looking to the God who is over all and creator of things and trusting him. And, and like, like this morning, 
We don't have heat upstairs, if you're wondering why they said to put coats up there, right? That's a tiny thing. But man, I could be like, well, I, I gotta figure something out. God knew, Jesus Christ knew the heat would be out. We could get it fixed and we could work on it together. Let's not, I'm not up there in the cold, so I can't complain. But that's just a little thing because there's such greater things that we must trust him with. I've heard of so many, even within our own congregation and others more recently, who are struggling with things like cancer and health conditions. Like when you come to that place in your life where things are so challenging and hard and difficult, are we able to step back and recognize that Jesus is God and creator over it all and we can trust him? That we can trust him. And believe me, it doesn't mean that we do nothing. I'm not an advocate for someone who says, God's got this cancer, I don't need to go to the doctor. He's given us grace and wisdom and expect us to walk in that. But we can trust him with whatever comes. We can trust him with whatever he does. And there are some in here today who have walked even far longer than I have in their Christian walk, and they could tell you that year after year, if you trust Jesus, the God who is the one who creates all things and in him and through him all things are made and finally all things hold together that when you trust him he can hold it all together Hebrews 1 3 continues that same thought that we read in verse 17 he's before all things and by him all things hold together in Hebrews it tells us that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful world. Friends, creation today is broken under the weight of sin and death. But it's only by God's grace through Christ that he holds it all together. That he keeps it all from falling apart. The awe and the wonder you experience standing by the ocean or overlooking the valleys and ranges from mountain overlooks the beauty of a sunrise and a sunset, the joy of good friends, all of those things are still veiled under a shadow of the full God-glorifying reality that we were created for. And God is holding it together in Christ. He is sustaining it. And he's sustaining it for what Paul goes on to talk about, new creation, the redemption of all things. Look with me in verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Paul is turning with the Colossian church to examine what is the foundation of the faith that they proclaim. They've stepped outside the common uh, deities that their city and the people are worshiping, and they are now following after this one who is Jesus. They are saying they're part of a church. And Paul's telling them he is the head of the body. There's many analogies for the church. We see body, we see uh, army, we see nation, a people of God. Um, over all of that, the one who is in authority and preeminence, the one who is in charge, the one who is authority, the one who rules, reigns, and has established that body is Christ himself. We're told here he's the beginning from firstborn from the dead so that he might have come to have first place the way that he's established as the head of the church is that he is the one who has resurrected and overcome death in his own body. Death no longer has a hold on Christ, and therefore death no, has, no longer has a hold on you. 
you know, we see the, the beauty of creation and all that is here. And uh, when I looked at this passage, I thought, um, I don't know if I've had enough time to go over this in one, ver- one sermon because most people think that I have a hard time keeping it tight anyway. Um, the same time I'm looking at it now and I feel like I'm a little bit short of words. Because what is Paul has encompassed in, in this passage is more than sufficient. When we come together as believers in the church and we look at authorities uh, and pastors and leaders who are in places, the thing that uh, burdens me over these many past months and years and more is the number of messages and stories and news reports and complaints and uh, exposures of people who have assumed spiritual authority and used it as a position of spiritual abuse. Um, it, it grieves me. And I don't know how to explain to you uh, whether that is, like, I'm not perfect in this role. Like, like, there's so many ways which I feel insufficient here, and I'm not trying to get you to pat me on the back after this, okay? Right? Don't send me any complaining emails either, but... Yeah. At the same time, that someone might take the name of Christ and use it as a position for their own glory or to harm others. Like, I, I, I don't know if it rightly, just like it frustrates you, or maybe you, maybe you get sucked into the gossip of it all, or maybe you don't pay attention, and I'm just the one who's sucked into it myself. But it angers me that when creation was made to glorify the head of the church, that there's a stain on his body brought by those men and women who violate that trust. Because as I stand here before you, while I might tell you I'm the pastor or I am one of the pastors of King's Cross, uh, that authority is subservient to the head because he's the shepherd. He is ultimately the over-shepherd. And his authority is not gained because he asserts it in any particular way, but because he is worthy. And he has rightfully purchased the church with his own blood. When it tells us he's the firstborn from the dead, it's the same idea that we see before, that he is preeminent from the dead because in his death, he has conquered it and resurrected and stands in authority over it to establish the church. So that, as, it tell, as we read here, he might come to have first place in absolutely everything. The rulers and authorities and thrones that we read about earlier in this hymn, later, Paul says, are put to open shame by Christ on the cross. There is no authority that is assumed on this earth that will not come with justice that will not see ultimately justice at the hand of Christ, who is the rightful head. And it is important to remember, friends, that he will bring justice even when we feel wronged in this world today. He is the one who brings and makes all things right. He's the resurrection from the dead. He's the firstborn of many brethren, and he makes life available to all. Verse 19 For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, friends, one of the greatest need we have in this creation is reconciliation and restoration. God, in and through Christ, created this world as it stood. And Paul is reminding us that from the beginning, there was no plan B. The plan has always been to establish Jesus Christ as the king and authority and Lord over it all. We might see the brokenness in this world around us and we might see the sin in our own lives and all of that separates us from God with a veil. It, 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 it holds us back. It keeps us from knowing the fullness of the glory of God and all that he is and who he is. To experience the reality of the God who's made all things and to know Jesus Christ perfectly and to walk with him is defunct. It's, it's, it's interrupted. It's broken by sin. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that we have, that humanity is like a kid that's sitting here playing in a mud pit, thinking this is great and good and wonderful and I'm doing my mud pies, when in reality, he's British, so he says holiday. I say vacation. He said, <laughs> when what God offers is really more of a holiday at the sea. And really, honestly, that's just like, That's still too close. <laughs> because we often find ourselves satisfied with the simple things of this world, believing that they are ultimate. That they will fill a hole in our life that only Christ can satisfy. And when God looked on our humble estate, when he looked at our brokenness in the world, it wasn't that he said, ah, forget them. They don't know me. They don't want me. Fine, I'll give them what they want. Instead, it pleased him to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ and through him to take what is broken and reconcile everything to himself. Like, ever, everything, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and he did it all in Christ by making peace through his blood. Jesus Christ is our peace. Friends, you have peace offered to you in Christ. And when we read this phrase and we say reconciled everything to himself, let me assure you the question here at hand is often, does that mean we all got it? We're all here. We're all good. We're all at peace with God. No, this is in fact to say that Christ and his sacrifice is sufficient for all. But God is not a tyrant and does not force your hand. But he stands with his arms open like the father he is and welcomes you home and says, please come because there's peace in my household. The offer stands for peace and it's all made right in Jesus Christ because he's made that peace through his blood. But brothers and sisters, everyone you know must come to the father themselves because it's free, but it's not forced. They're keeping warm upstairs. <laughs> and that's the offer we have today. Because even if you know Christ, let me just assure you, sin still holds you back from knowing the fullness of who God is in him. 
if you're walking in sin day after day, if you're finding yourself held back, or you're finding yourself stumbling and walking in that sin, there is reconciliation and peace offered at the cross. Come to him freely and receive it. If you're someone who looks at this and says, Dude, I ain't never heard any of this, but you want to know Christ, please come to Jesus and receive him. Because what God has offered to us in Christ, the fullness of himself dwelling in him is fullness of life. Like, like, like there's nothing you experience in this world that can satisfy like him. And like every, man, I'm not like advertising this, like it's gonna be great after you take Jesus. It's a battle. I know it, but he's worth it. Like, like he is fully worth it because in Christ, the body of Jesus, he is restoring the world. He is bringing things all new. Matter of fact, if I wanna, I want to clarify this. I got time because I've been going pretty quick here. I got time. Sorry. Okay, listen. When Jesus reconciled the world in his blood and was resurrected from the dead, the tomb was empty. And that's important. That's important because remember the Colossian, some of the Colossian heresy believes that all things physical are evil. There's nothing that Christ has created that is discarded. He wants to reconcile it all. And so when Christ's body, it wasn't, a, it wasn't when he, it says words like new body, it's a restored and reconciled body, but he's still the same person. You and your wholeness, God wants to reconcile and restore to him. The new heaven, the new earth, it's not like a brand new remake. He reconciles and restores it all to him. Like, there's not another plan. There's the purpose of God fully founded and worked through the work of Christ. And, and, and what I'm telling you today is that the transformational, the reconciling, the resurrecting new life that is available isn't just something in the future that happens when you get to heaven. In fact, if we talk and we sit around coffee, I'll tell you, I don't like that idea of thinking about going to heaven. Because God has a determined in his purpose to restore and reconcile us all here today. He changes lives today. He makes you new today. You, you can be free today from the bondage of sin. You can shed those shackles. Romans says you're no longer a slave to that. And like, I would want nothing more than, even though it's going to be tough, even though this life is throwing everything at you, even though the heat doesn't always work. Like, he's enough. And he sustains all of creation and he can sustain you. God has a desire and a love for restoring what's broken. And friends, if I could encourage one thing, look to Jesus Christ, who is the supreme, central, and preeminent God over creation and over new creation. Look to Christ and be reconciled to the Father where true life can be found. You pray with me. <coughs> Father, in your kindness,
We're so grateful. Like this. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all he is, all he has been, and all he is to be for us. Thank you that by him, through him, and for him, you've made us to glorify him. And God, I pray today that no one would leave here unchanged. I pray today that every quirk and problem that I have in my own person would not get in the way of all of us seeing Christ more beautifully. God, I pray today that Jesus would be supreme, central, and preeminent in each of our lives. And Father, we trust that in him you can do all of that and more. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.